0: Okay, Nehemiah 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, Those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, we have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you turn to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favour in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever, Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, What is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king, If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, how long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of of trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah, and may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. When Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. I went, into, I went to Jerusalem and after staying there three days I set, out, um, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went out through the valley gate towards the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on towards the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up to the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate, The officials did not know where I'd gone or what I was doing, because as yet, I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard about this, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing? They asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or claim or historic right to it.
1: Well, good morning to you once again. Let me say it is an absolute thrill to be here today. Uh, Thank you so much for inviting me. Uh, And let me uh, perhaps start, too, with an apology. I've... um, I've lived most of my life in the south of England, so I've yet to learn to speak properly. If you wouldn't mind just translating where necessary uh, and that kind of thing, I'm sure you'd be gracious enough to me. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light for our path. As your spirit works among us this morning, might it be so for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Amen. I'm not afraid of an army of lions led by a sheep. I am afraid of an army of sheep led by a lion. Anybody know who said that? It was Alexander the Great who said that. And it's not hard to see what he was driving at. Strong leadership can be a fearsome thing. It can accomplish things out of all proportion to what you might otherwise expect. Just look, for example, at President Zelensky of Ukraine. When Russian troops rolled into Ukraine last February, after that long drawn out building buildup, do you remember? That the world thought the country would fold within days, didn't it? new and yet here we are the leadership of this former actor changed everything he rallied his troops to fight he rallied the world to join into with guns and tanks and missiles sanctions and what have you he's galvanized everyone his words and his example have had extraordinary effect he's proved to be A lion of a leader. There's a problem with being led by a lion though. Uh, Lions are hungry beasts and if they don't get their appetites satisfied out there there's always the chance they might turn around and start eyeing you up for their next meal. Witness the slew of bullying allegations just among the MPs over the last couple of years. Priti Pratel and Dominic Ra on the conservative side, Liam Byrne and Christina Rees and Labour. And of course, the one who seemed to lead the charge and summarise everything, uh, the former Speaker of the House, John Bercow. Remember him? Bercow led the operations of the House of Commons for a decade. He was a big man. But while Zelensky was busy going from zero to hero last spring, Burko was officially going the other way with the publication of a report into his actions. Turned out his, his behavior was deemed so appalling he wouldn't even be able to get a pass into the commons anymore to let him in. The one famous for calling order, order, I won't do the accent, <laughs> was ruled apparently out of order. He was a bully. He was an abuser of power. And there we have the problem, don't we? We want strong leaders. We need strong leaders. But so often that strength that we admire turns out to be self-serving, manipulative, brutal even. Power is abused. It, It turns out giving a lion free reign doesn't always end well for the sheep around them or we've seen that in the world at large. And sadly, we've seen it even in churches and Christian organizations, haven't we? These, this past decade has been painful, hasn't it? Extraordinarily painful, as one after another of our widely respected Christian leaders has had the, lift, the, 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 the lid lifted on their behavior behind the scenes. The curtain's been pulled back, and what we've seen has been ugly. I imagine I imagine there'll be very few of us in this room who've been spared the need to do some kind of mental recalibration in terms of where we place our respect and our appreciation, our, our gratitude for ministry in the wider Christian world. Apart from anything else, we've just had to upskill to understand power issues and adjust our ways of working in the light of them and to respond appropriately to abuse where it happens but it's just been hard, really hard A few weeks ago, uh, the church where I serve in Southampton, we felt leadership failure in the wider Christian world had become such a big issue for our young congregation that we, we took a whole Sunday out of our regular expository series to address the question head on as a church. How do we respond when our Christian leaders fail? Leadership failure in the world at large and leadership failure in the Christian world. So where can you find a model of leadership that is both strong and properly directed? That is effective but also trustworthy. The character of Nehemiah in the Bible has been an inspiration to generations of Christians who are struggling with exactly that question. J.I. Packer, the great 20th century Anglican theologian once said about Nehemiah, he has helped me perhaps more than any other Bible character. And so it's to the book of Nehemiah, at least the first eight chapters of it, that we're gonna turn our attention today. Uh, over three installments. Now, just to be clear, this book is more than just a manual of leadership. We'll we'll see plenty of other themes on the way through during the day. But certainly in this very first part of the book, it is very much he, the man, the leader, Nehemiah, who is front and centre. So for anybody here who is in leadership of some form, whether leadership of a small group, or a team, or a ministry, or a household, family, or indeed a church, a leadership on their own or a leadership alongside others, or who may one day lead others in some context like that, or perhaps aspires to some form of leadership or simply wants to know how to pray for leaders or what to look for in a good leader. Have I got to you yet? For anybody in any of those categories, what we see here in Nehemiah 1 and 2 is fine gold. It is a masterclass in godly leadership. So, how does Nehemiah become God's leader for the moment? What exactly does he do that is so exemplary? Well, for one thing, look where he starts. He felt the predicament. He felt the predicament. Now, I, I had to stop myself there almost because I, I, what I wanted to say was he saw the predicament. That sounds a bit norm, more normal, doesn't it? It's what we regularly say. He saw the predicament. He spotted the issue. He figured out what, it, what needed fixing. But actually, that's not it in these early verses. Not quite. Have a look at verse four. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. See, he hasn't just put his finger on a problem that needs fixing. He's pondering a disgrace that needs lamenting. Not just a problem that needs fixing. A disgrace that needs lamenting. What is the disgrace? We'll come back to verse one and let's do a quick bit of historical context for the book, which will help us for the whole day. Now, we're used to documents being uh, dated at the top of them, aren't we? And this one's no exception. The date at this point is apparently sometime in November 445 B.C. That's what you get if you decode verse one. Chislef, November 20th year of Artaxerxes, uh, 445 B.C. But uh, let's go back a bit further. Let's go back 500 years further, in fact. When Israel was in its heyday, wise King Solomon was on the throne, his glorious temple had just been completed, and his wisdom, his wealth, his territories, his city of Jerusalem were the toast of the world, or at least that corner of the world. They were flying high. Do you remember what uh, the Queen of Sheba said when she came on her state visit to Jerusalem? 1 Kings 10 verse 6, she said to the king, the report I heard in my own country about your achievements and your wisdom is true, but I didn't believe it until I came and saw with my own eyes. Indeed, not even half was told me. In wisdom and wealth, you have far exceeded the report I heard. as he goes on, because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel, he's made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. It's quite a report card, isn't it? But then Jerusalem under Solomon was quite a remarkable place. But it didn't last long. Soon after Solomon's death, the fairy tale ended. The people of God were split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom, known as Israel. The southern kingdom, known as Judah. And what happened in the centuries that followed was just a long, slow decline for both of those kingdoms. And then finally, disaster. The northern kingdom, based up in Samaria, disintegrated faster. It was conquered in about 721 BC by the great superpower of the day, the Assyrian Empire. But a century and a bit later, the south met a similar fate. International politics had moved on by then. The Assyrians had themselves been conquered by the the Babylonians. And so it was Babylon who conquered the Southern kingdom of Jerusalem in about 587 BC and supported anybody of any real position to Babylon. It was the worst nightmare for the people of God. But here's the thing, international politics kept moving. And the Babylonians themselves were conquered by the Persians. And the Persians developed a policy of allowing peoples who'd been conquered by Babylon to return to their homeland. And so it was that the books of Ezra and Nehemiah record a momentous new movement. The return to Jerusalem of those who'd been exiled, or at least their children and grandchildren now i say movement it was actually uh, something that happened in three waves as it were first zerubbabel led a group back and promptly rebuilt the temple actually uh, tried to rebuild the walls but ran into problems and stopped that's the first half of the book of ezra 70 years later ezra the scribe led a further group back he tried to uh, uh, to bring a, like some kind of moral and spiritual reformation to jerusalem That's the second half of Ezra. And now a further 13 years later comes Nehemiah, who, um, spoiler alert, is going to lead a third wave. For now, though, he is just deeply concerned by what his brother tells him. His brother has visited Jerusalem, and Nehemiah has asked him how how it's all going down there. And it turns out the news is not good. Verse 3. Those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. And Nehemiah is just horrified by this. So verse 4 again. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. I wonder when the last time you wept was. And by that I mean really, really wept and wept. Many of us in this room, I'm sure, have been through some truly awful situations and seasons of life. You, you know bitter hurt. You know horrific anxiety. Dreadful sorrow. Acute grief. Do You remember that? For some, it won't be hard to remember at all. Those are the kind of times when we tend to weep and weep, aren't they? But it takes a very special kind of empathy to weep for others who are going through the same experience with that kind of intensity. Oh, sure, you see somebody in pain and you're sad for them. You maybe even shed some tears for them. But to be able to weep and weep, For others with this kind of abandon. Is an unusual gift. It's one Nehemiah seems to have though. You see what he's processing. The defences of Jerusalem are down. And that means trouble. The threat of invasion. A trouble and disgrace. Because the reputation of Jerusalem. And therefore of the God of the people of Jerusalem. Was in tatters and nearby cannot help but feel the gravity of that situation. This is not just a problem in need of a solution. It's a crisis he is deeply burdened by for days. You see that? It's crushing for him. Debilitating. Why? Well, presumably because of where his heart is. It's with his people. It's with his God. Now, this is deeply instructive for us. If you're in any kind of spiritual leadership, please take note. Your ministry is not some task to be scheduled and executed and then just ticked off a to-do list. No, it's more than that. The the, the spiritual condition of those under your care is a a weighty business. Uh, Yes, ultimately, it's God's business. You you and I are, are not their savior. But when there is trouble for God's people, or a disgrace to God's name, should we not sit down and mourn and weep? Are you as personally impacted by your people's condition as Nehemiah is? He felt the predicament. That was the first demonstration of Nehemiah's leadership. And then he sought the Lord in prayer. He sought the Lord in prayer. Now, rather than rushing into takes some bold initiative to rectify the situation straight out. He just goes to God. It's a powerful statement, isn't it? And a great rebuke for the activists among us. Rather than acting out of supposed self-sufficiency, he discerns where the sufficiency really lies, in the strong arm of God. And so he prays. And what a prayer it is when we're looking for uh, models for prayer, I guess we often go to the prayers that Jesus taught us or the prayers uh, Paul reported in his letters. I have to say, when I was really getting serious about wanting to learn to pray, one of the books that impacted me most was Don Carson's book, A Call to Spiritual Reformation. Actually, I, I listened to the recordings of the talks first and then read the book later. But it was deeply formative for me as I tried to grow my prayer life. And uh, if you're interested in growing in your prayer life, you, you want to dig deeper into this area of Christian retreat I would commend that book to you among others. And that other book that was uh, mentioned earlier on is another fine one, Philip Jensen's book. Do ha- get hold of one of those books anyway and start going through it clearly. In that case, allow Paul's priorities to mold your own. But for all that, I want to suggest that um, this prayer here in Nehemiah is up there with the best of them when it comes to templates for our own times of prayer. What does prayer look like for this leader, Nehemiah? Four A's. First, it looks like adoring. Adoring is nothing complicated. It's just expressing wonder at the one in front of you. Uh, This is what uh, Libby and I uh, used to describe to our children when they were younger as Wow, prayers. Uh, that's how Nehemiah starts. Verse 5, then, then I said, Lord, God of heaven, that is, high up and exalted one. a Great and awesome, that is, powerful one. You keep your covenant, that is, you are the faithful one. You see? He's just starting with adoring. Wow, God, you really are something. You're exalted, you're powerful, you're faithful. Second, admitting, owning up, acknowledging, wrongdoing. In simple language, these are the sorry prayers. Halfway through verse six, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. You'll know, I'm sure, that apologizing, owning your, your wrongdoing, always we, oils the wheels of relationship, doesn't it? It's not that the husband who refuses to apologize to his wife is any less married to her because of his stubbornness. But the relationship just seems a bit more functional when he does. In fact, it's more beautiful when he does. It's the same with God. Nehemiah doesn't fear being cast out from God's people if he doesn't confess. He confesses so as to refresh and reset his relationship with God Again, a, a wonderful model for sinful people And um, particularly for sinful leaders, I think Third, there is adapting Adapting, this is an important one It's so common in our prayers, isn't it? To decide what we want And ask God to bend his will to our desire Isn't that typical of us? And not Nehemiah. And no, for him, it's the other way around. He adapts what he seeks to what God says his will is. You see? Look how he calls to mind what God said. Verse 8. Remember. Remember what you said. What was it? Be for unfaithful and I'll scatter you. But, verse 9, if you return to me and obey my commands, and even if your exiled people are at the furthest horizon, I'll gather them from there and bring them to the place I've chosen as a dwelling for my name. You see what he's doing, don't you? This isn't for God's benefit. It's not like God's forgotten what he said. It's for his own benefit. He's making sure as far as he's able that his request is in line with God's revealed will. Adoring, admitting, adapting, and only then, verse 11, asking. Let your ear be attentive. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. Now that is how to pray. So let me ask you, if your ministry involves any kind of leadership about this, do you see it as integral to your role? to pray for God's work, and to pray in this way, pray these kind of full-orbed, rounded prayers. If you're planning any kind of kingdom initiative, you're looking for a chance to share the gospel, or start a new group or at work, or, or invite someone along to an event, or initiate a friendship with the neighbors as a bridge to a gospel-sharing opportunity, whatever it is, do you start with prayer? That's where the sufficiency is, isn't it? No, not in our clever plotting and planning. I mean, God. This is something I constantly have to keep myself to. I am by nature an activist, like many Christian leaders, which is just another way of saying, Satan's go-to temptation for me is to convince me that I can just get on and figure it out. I can solve it, I can plan it, get it done, force the point without God. Years ago, uh, when I was in my 20s, living in Australia, I met a young Vietnamese student, and we got talking, and I discovered he'd never even heard of Jesus, not even heard the name of Jesus. But he agreed to meet with me and find out more, and so week by week we met, and we opened up Mark's Gospel and the portrait of Jesus, and it was such a privilege. And eventually I felt it was time to challenge him, about where he stood. And I, I used the old bridge illustration with him. You know, you know, the bridge illustration, man here, God there, big chasm in between. Nothing can bridge the gap. None of our good deeds, our religious acts, only the cross of Jesus can bridge the gap. And if you don't cross over, you'll find this side leads to death. So, so are you ready to cross the bridge by Jesus and find life? That's the bridge illustration. I gave it my best shot. But you know, all I got back was, hmm, interesting. Which was not what I was going for, to be honest. So what I decided to do was to build a 3D version of the bridge illustration using the items available to me at the table that we were sitting at, you follow? We were meeting in a Vietnamese restaurant. It was closed at the time. He got a free bed above the restaurant in return for for, um, his waitering service. And so he let me in, and um, there we were that afternoon, sitting at one of the tables, all laid up for the evening session a little bit later on. And I got some napkins and some chopsticks, I think a a menu and some other things, and I built this this, this, this bridge, uh, and I pointed out where he was at the moment. He was on this side, the side that was perishing. And I asked him, do you really want to stay there? Hmm, not sure. He said, at which point I thought, in for a penny. And um, I said, do you realize what happens if you stay on this side of the chasm, the sin side, the man side? And I reached for some matches and set fire to this, this, uh, this construction, this, the, the napkins and things on this side. So He could see it burn up. <laughs> At which point the smoke detectors came into action. The alarm sounded. Some kind of sprinkler system uh, was activated. And we were in chaos. Turned out he almost lost his lodgings as a result of that little stunt with me. Now, do you see where I went wrong? I thought I needed to, to force the issue. I thought my little drama would convince him, would absolutely get him over the line, would propel him into the kingdom. I thought that was my job how foolish i was at theological college at the time training to be a christian leader and i hadn't yet grasped that most basic of points about christian leadership that the sufficiency is found in god not the leader you don't pry eyes open you pray for god to open those eyes you seek the lord Well, I may have been slow to get it, but this leader got it. Nehemiah sought the Lord. But now finally he does take action. Nehemiah took the opportunity. As chapter two starts, time has moved on. It's three months later, the month of Nisan, a bit longer than the time frame he was hoping for today, but then God does that, doesn't he, sometimes? But finally, an opportunity does come. And yet it is, to be fair, a high risk opportunity. Turns out, Nehemiah is a highly trusted servant of the king. A cupbearer is as good as private secretary, maybe even chief of staff. The king trusts Nehemiah with his life. But actually, it's the other way around too. Nehemiah's life is at the mercy of the king. And one thing you just can't be in the king's presence is sad. That would be an affront to the king. How could anybody be less than totally joyful when they get to serve the great Artaxerxes? So when the king notices Nehemiah's long face and and comments on it, Nehemiah is terrified. End of verse 2, I was very much afraid. But you notice his fear doesn't get the better of him, as it so often does for us. No, he lays his fear to one side and sees the opportunity for what it is tells the king straight out about the situation which is burdening him so much. So verse three, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Takes a big gulp, I would imagine, and awaits the king's response. This could go very badly. Then again, remember Proverbs 21, verse 1, in the Lord's hand, the king's heart is a stream of water that he channels towards all who please him. So what does the king say? Verse 4, the king said to me, what is it you want? And here we get to glimpse two hallmarks of Nehemiah's approach, spontaneous prayer and scrupulous planning. There's a spontaneous prayer, a quick arrow, end of verse four. I pray to the God of heaven, right there and then. (laughs) Do you ever do that when you know you need help fast? I certainly do. But don't be fooled, he's not just some kind of chancer. Look how well prepared he is for this opportunity. What do I want? Well, now that you mention it, (laughs) out comes the shopping list. (laughs) I need a royal commission, verse two, so verse five. Um, to go about the construction. I need some weeks off, end of verse six, uh, to get the job done. Uh, I need a travel warrant, verse seven. And uh, verse eight, I need a requisition for some timber. That should do it to get me started. (laughs) He's done his homework, hasn't he? He knows exactly what he wants. And amazingly, he gets it, all of it. And not because of his gall or his persuasive powers, Or anything like that. But because, end of verse eight, see? Because the gracious hand of my God was on me. Recognizing and taking and making the best of God-given opportunities. It's part of Christian discipleship. applies across the board from, from dating to job hunting. But particularly it applies, I think, to leadership and gospel initiatives. Make the most of every opportunity, said Paul, Colossians 4, verse 5. If you are cautious and risk averse, this will be a challenge to you. You'll find this hard, but it is part of leadership. And can I say, too, it's so important that we we recognize that responsibility and give space and permission and encouragement for our leaders to look for and take opportunities it is one of the most wearing things about christian leadership the experience of ideas and vision being met time and again with skepticism cynicism pessimism of course it's dressed up nicely the critics and the naysayers will use words like prudence and wisdom appropriate caution Words you can't really argue with, Bible words. But look a bit more closely at what's really going on, the attitudes behind those words. And what you are likely to find is really lack of faith, lack of gospel urgency, lack of creativity, lack of courage. But just dressed up in the top hat of Bible words. I don't know if this is an issue in your church, but it is in many. So let me encourage you, if you need this encouragement, give your leaders the benefit of the doubt. Let them try their idea. Let them give it a really proper go, in fact. Tell the naysayer over there, who's always negative and small-minded and carping on about whatever it is, to put a sock in it. And throw yourself in and do your bit to make sure that the venture flies. And if it does fail, rather than fly, don't criticize, don't say I told you so, don't make it impossible to to do anything else for another 15 years because that thing is proof that everything fails. Instead, praise them for their willingness to take risks. Praise them for their creativity and their courage and start looking for the next opportunity. Our leaders need to be gospel entrepreneurs and we need to encourage them in that. Well, let's get back to Nehemiah because the job's not done yet. In fact, I think you'd have to say he's not even at the starting line at this point. So what's next? He felt the predicament, he sought the Lord, he took the opportunity And now he built the team. Verse 11 tells us how Nehemiah gets himself to Jerusalem and finds his bearings for a few days. But what he really needs to do is assess the situation for himself. He's had that verbal report from his brother, but if he's going to lead others in a major project, he needs to know what he's talking about. So before he goes public about his plans... He does this kind of secret midnight recce, just a handful of people with him. Verse 12, I set out during the night with a few others. Verse 13, I went through the valley gate towards the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. He does a whole circuit of the walls, a kind of moonlight inspection. And only then, Does he approach the authorities in Jerusalem, such as they are? And he gives them the brief that they need. This is verses uh, 17, 18. There's the physical situation. The Jerusalem is in ruins. There's the security implication. The people are in trouble. And there's the reputational issue disgrace. All up, it's not great. But there is one thing they have got going for them it is spiritual encouragement i also told them about the gracious hand of my god on me and what the king had said to me and with that in the background he shares the vision come let us rebuild the wall of jerusalem in other words are you in and their reply yes we are let us start rebuilding So they began this good work. And with that, they're in business. A massive construction project like this can't be done by one person alone. It needs hundreds of people. And it needs every one of them putting their weight. Of course, the New Testament in time would, would talk about a body where each part finds its place and does its work, lives out its role. Remember that in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12. Or there's in Philippians 1, an army contending as one for the faith of the gospel. Talks about fellow gardeners, fellow builders, partners. Paul traveled with Barnabas, later Silas, in his missionary journey. The point is clear. Kingdom initiatives need not solo artists, but team players. Think back to the last major outreach event you did as a church. And just think about the different people who were involved there. Maybe there were some upfront people. But maybe, too, there were those who helped generally raise the profile of the thing, the websites, the invitations. Those who actually spread those invitations around to people they knew or, or other contacts. Those who made the building comfortable and aesthetically pleasing. Those who took care of the hospitality, the refreshments, the food, whatever. Those who welcomed people to the the meeting, those who just spontaneously chatted to other people, to the visitors, those who produced the literature, those who took care of the tech side of things. I don't know, probably others too. And maybe people doubled up in some of those roles, but, but that kind of event is such a beautiful display of what it looks like to work as a team for the cause of Christ, isn't it? But that is what godly leaders do. They they build teams. And those teams contend as one for the faith of the gospel. And then finally, before we break for coffee, Nehemiah overcame the opposition. Now, I won't say much about this now because this theme will return. But just notice how opposition kicks off right from the start of this project. The scorn, verse 19. They mocked and ridiculed us. And more than just scorn, accusation. Are you rebelling against the king? They're certainly not with him, are they? Then again, that's always the way, isn't it? When you you try to accomplish something that really matters, there'll always be criticism. We talked about this earlier on. And those critics can get to you. They they can grind you down. They can make you you want to just give up and run away, can't they? You never felt that? That person who can be relied on to find fault with any suggestion or, or plan. Or maybe we might take inspiration from Nehemiah's response in verse 20. He looks them square in the face and says, The God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. He wasn't going to be overcome. No, he he himself overcame. What a model that is. This is godly leadership. It is the leadership we need. And of course, in Jesus, it is the leadership we have, isn't it? You talk about feeling the predicament. Who was it who wept over Jerusalem as he saw what lay ahead? Who had compassion on those without a shepherd? Talk about seeking the Lord. Who was it that went off and prayed to his father again and again, even neglecting practical ministry opportunities that he had to protect that time? Who was it that, uh, uh, when it comes to to taking the opportunity, saw the saw birds and seeds saw hungry people and paralyzed people and hypocritical people and turned what he saw into opportunities for the ministry of the word. Who was it who who took the Pharisees' murderous rage and found in that an opportunity to step up and accomplish his mission to die the death he came to die? Talk about building a team. Who was it that established his team of 12, sent them to work, sometimes focusing on a smaller group of three, sometimes a bigger group of 72, but always rejoicing to see his people working together. And talk about overcoming the opposition. Who was it who endured opposition and criticism and mockery and betrayal and desertion and torture and death, only to rise to new life? This is Jesus all the way, isn't it? This model of godly leadership. Now we were talking about lions. In John's vision of Revelation 5, there is cause for celebration. See that the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. The majestic lion of Genesis 49 has come and shown himself and triumphed. His name is Jesus. And it's the fact that Jesus is this kind of majestic leader, the one who gives this Nehemiah plus kind of lead, as it were, that makes me want to follow him for one. He says, follow me. And I think, yes, maybe there are self-serving leaders out there. There are narcissistic leaders and abusive leaders. But you give me confidence that leadership itself is not the problem because you're a leader I want to take my lead from. Now, if you've never started doing that, and I take it in a group this size, there will be some here who have never actually started doing that. Then let me encourage you to begin to take your lead from Jesus. It doesn't get any better than this. This leader, follow this one. But again, if you exercise any kind of leadership yourself, or you aspire to, want to pray for leaders that you know, you could do worse than filling your mind with this model of Nehemiah. We need leaders, but we need the right leaders, godly leaders. Let's let Nehemiah show us what that
0: means.